Hello, everybody. Um, joining me is Ross Harding here um, from a, an awesome project, which is the new normal. Ross, help me understand here a little bit about the new normal. How would you describe it in about two words or five words or a hundred words? Because there's so much in this and it's such a big plan. It's got a hundred billion dollars attached to it. So you've got a hundred words. Go for it. I'll keep it as brief as possible. I guess it's um, uh, it's transforming uh, Greater Melbourne into a city that's based on resources that will never run out within uh, within the decade. Okay, so I want to I want to actually go on our three dimensions here, which is a strong economy. I want to talk about the sustainable environment and the social equity, mm -hmm. and I just want to focus in on the strong economy to start off with. Sure. Melbourne at the moment has somewhere around about $54 billion of economic activity proposed around um, infrastructure projects over a four-year period. Mm -hmm. The plan that you're looking at is $100 billion over a 10-year period. So it's on par with the infrastructure projects. So this is a significant job creator for Melbourne. What, how many jobs is it looking at creating by 2030? Uh, about 80,000 uh, in construction and 40,000 ongoing from there. Okay, so you're, you blow away the, uh, the coal industry with all of their talk about new mines and that. You're more, you, you've got more impact there. Has it caught the attention of people who are the we're about jobs and we're about growth for Melbourne? Or is the fact that it's attached to the idea of a sustainable and more equitable future have they not attached to it yet? Yeah, no, I think um, we've kind of set it up in a way that it's um, accessible for everyone, really. I think that the you know, general public, the private sector and the public sector are all sort of very supportive and engaged in it um, on various levels, I guess, you know, high, you know, high enthusiasm versus like slightly enthusiastic, but I think it's accessible for all. So when we first started talking about this, which was somewhere during, I think, lockdown two, is so middle last year, yep. and we were in a very different environment then where we had an idea that smart capital was going to actually be following projects that were about a better future, but we're now seeing that there's actually a flight from what might have been some traditional stalwart placements that people had and they're looking for better future placements um, low carbon um, sustainable um, economically sustainable on the environment you went and did a bit of a pitching round during design week in melbourne 2021 yeah there was a pop-up exhibit that you went and did that had demonstration projects there you had uh, pictures from uh, the different project um, leaders 15 projects how many got funded since you went and did that pitch cycle? Uh, four of them funded, uh, two in serious negotiations, and, yeah, then there's another nine that we've uh, still got a fair bit of work to do. Okay, so then that would have to be one of the most successful pitching startup rounds that I've heard because if I went to somewhere like a um, uh, one of the accelerator programs and we were looking at tech startups, 15 winds up with one being one being funded and greenland there's some small placements but you know it's not the sorts of numbers that you've got there so this is a well-founded proposition that you've got but it does something which is i think now becoming more of people's understanding which is 
doing something which is smart for the environment is often also smart for the economy in a city. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, the, the way that I see this is that it, it really comes from the position of the inevitability of this needing to happen. And I think, like, really, we have to spend that money at some point in time. And the longer we wait, the more it's going to cost us. So it's it's like, and I think that's probably, that was the starting point of probably, I think what was probably interesting about the work we did was just put a price tag on it. What does it cost to create a city that is zero carbon, water neutral and zero waste? And I, I haven't seen those figures before. So it was kind of like interesting for us to find them out ourselves. And then um, really, if you look at it, um, I think that, I think a lot of what's changed in the industry is that I think it's gone from being a question of like, should we do it or should we not do it? Whereas I think, you know, really post bushfires, post COVID or, you know, you know, since COVID, um, it's, I think that people have started to just sort of treat this stuff as something that is uh, definitely going to happen and like starting to get their head around how we're going to really deliver it. Okay, so I'm going to take you back then to the term that I used before about accelerator. You know, we, we know that there's startup accelerators, that there's tech accelerators. This is a better future accelerator. You're, you're talking about there's going to be a new normal that, that will be happening in either 10, 20 or 30 years' time. How do we actually bring those economic benefits to Melbourne faster so that we get the efficiencies and also we get rid of the inefficiency. So we get the lift, but we also get rid of the dead dollars that would be happening in the economy. How many people have you spoken to that actually get that economic formula there? Or, you know, because I know when we originally spoke about it, that they're the people that need to attach to, to what you've got here. They're the people who are going to say, I want to see the smart economic decisions heading in this way. They're, there's, of course, there's all the environmental side. There's all the social equity. There's the job making. But just raw economics. Have they begun to actually um, um, have more conversations, lattes with you? Well, I mean, I, I think bigger picture, looking at the whole, the, the you know, the whole proposition, the whole discussion, it, like, I think it's interesting because you can get technical, you can get financial, you can get economic about it, but I think it all comes down to a communications exercise. And I think that when you start talking about figures like $100 billion, I've found it doesn't really matter who you're talking to so much. Like, I don't think that's all that tangible for many people. And I've found that what's been interesting in terms of communication and engaging people on this topic is looking at it top down, bottom up at the same time and kind of coming at it from here's a, you know, like here's a $100 billion opportunity. Here's 15 tangible projects that could unlock that $100 billion opportunity. And here's a, here's a pathway to get things started. And I think that when I'm having lattes with these people you're talking about, that's what I'm finding people are connecting with. If I was going in there and saying, we think there's a $28 billion energy efficiency opportunity in the city, I'm just a dreamer. I'm just a guy that's wandering around going, yeah, big idea, good one, Ross, who cares about it? But actually, I think what's exciting about where we're coming at it from is going, we're going to do a $2 million retrofit of an existing 15 studio apartment project in Fitzroy. And that's an example of how we can unlock a $28 billion opportunity. 
Uh-huh. And I think looking at it on that kind of like top down, bottom up at the same time, it's made it kind of like I was saying before, it's accessible to so many people to plug into. We're talking to the unions, we're talking to the councils, we're talking to state government, we're talking to the private sector. We're, you know, we're, 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 and then also like we're really making a big effort to engage with the general public. And so I think that, um, I think, I personally think like quite often these huge and exciting opportunities just from trial and error and talking to people about it, I think that no one really knows how to unlock them and get them started. And like, and I'm not saying I do, but we, I feel like we're starting to have a bit of movement um, in what we're doing because we're having a bite-sized crack at, at moving that forwards. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's two things that really impressed me when I went and looked at the document you've got. One is a, a page that has all of the local government authorities that are, that are engaged with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and have lent in to, to what you're talking about. And then there's also the people who are the different design studios who have lent in into you. But you've got people like uh, Mott McDonald who are in here. You've also got Atelier 10. You know, this is like the who's who. You're a city of Melbourne here. You've got a Golden Age who are big developers in there. And um, so that's really useful that they're actually um, saying that they're interested because they, they want to go build on and operate. Um, properties that are efficient, so you know, great adoption there. Sustainability Victoria, you're helping those people who are trying to go run their own issues. And as you said, everyone's trying to unlock this. And there's a certain magical point where everyone's playing at the puzzle and it, the, the bits lock into place, and then all of a sudden there's enablement. And that's, a, a, I think it is um, Channel 4 in, um, in France. They have a, a logo which is all of these bits and as they turn around the model, then all of a sudden what look like disparate bits then become this beautiful Channel 4 logo. Mm-hmm. And that to me is kind of what you're doing is by having these conversations, you're giving people uh, the model shifting around and then that clear path comes through that people can see this is how I go execute it. And because you've got a collection of people that they then know who they can talk with, who they can partner with. This is not normal in the built space, but very normal in the technology space. Mm-hmm. Have, have the likes of Startup Victoria or you know, the innovation people, have they started to kick in and actually identify what you're doing or are they yet to go see that many of the programs that they're involved with will also fit in with you? No, uh, no, I don't really have any sort of technology partners necessarily or really connections. I mean, I, I'm an engineer. I, I work in kind of like advising on technology, but I'm not in the tech sort of startup space. But I think, I mean, it's interesting what you say and it's a good observation. And I, I feel like um, I've been theorizing on this stuff for a long time and obsessed with the idea of the self-sufficient city. But I think really what changed in my own mind that helped progress things was um, to remove myself from the exercise. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think I think it was always me and my idea and what we wanted to do and like we were gonna try and convince people to do this. And like you said, all those people in that document, like it's not really, it's not our idea. It's like, it's we, we've been, we're the janitor we're facilitating a process 
and we've brought an amazing group of people together. And I think that that was a big turning point in my personal thinking is that I think that, you know, fundamentally we looked at it as that humans are instinctively against change. Um, so how do we empathize with that and how do we make that easier for people to engage with the radical change that's required? And so we've been trying to, in a measured sense, bring as many people in as possible, not just to go out to everyone, but we've been kind of targeting. It went from basically me and my, you know, Will, who works in the engineer, we've just been doing backyard calculations to broadening it out to a group of um, architects who then we, when we, when we kind of presented it to the group, it, I saw the room, it went from being our idea to the group, you know, like I, I felt like by involving that group, they took ownership. Uh -huh. And I think that really like the more I think about a city and citizens is that we, we all own the city, like we're all in charge of the city, but we're not really all that empowered to. And so I think that looking at this project, it's been interesting to then like, you know, layers of the onion, there's more people that are, we've then, we've then taken the architects um, to kind of like, yeah, like you said, to present that to a group of people that could then ask the question, we're not saying, like none of us are saying we've got it worked out. We're all sort of saying, hey, here's what we want to do. Can you help us? Hmm. And I think that um, I found that really interesting and unusual that, that actually there aren't many opportunities I've noticed in cities where you, where you actually proactively get to propose what you want to do and, and there's, a, there's a space to be able to say, hey, can you help us kind of do something different? And so, um, yeah, I found like, and I, I and it is interesting how like even as you said the, um, the the speed at which the projects are starting to become realized, I think that's because no one's trying to lift that on their own shoulders. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's it's not a um, the projects that we're finding are coming through are more like oh well they were already doing that anyway and then this was happening and then they've got a site and then these guys have got some money and you know like it's just I'm it's that's bringing good. people together is really all we're doing I think. I'll take you, um, and I'm going to show my age here. <laughs> so I'll take you to 1986 and uh, the, the Kennett government was wanting to see that the that Victoria had a first mover advantage in the di digital revolution. Yeah? It's a very long revolution. I've been still happening. You know, it's like that's a, a long time ago. And at that stage, Ballarat had a few little institutions and a few little things in the high-tech world. But there was an effort made to go and get them to coalesce and to get them to become known as Ballarat as an entity that, that had a speciality. And a lot of that came from IBM because IBM were at that stage were making their ThinkPad notebooks in, in Ballarat. And so that then meant that there was an advanced manufacturer of electronic devices. There was assembly, there was uh, research uh, people up there. And they were able to bring that whole ecosystem together and just give them the idea that something existed. And then the magic happens when people think they're part of a movement. Mm -hmm. what, I can, what I can see you doing here with the, with the new normal is that you're giving people this idea uh, you're shining a spotlight into the future. You're turning around and you're giving them an idea that there's that coalescence of, of people like me. There's a tribe. But 
there's also some phenomenal economics behind this. There's smarts in here. I, by reading this, I become a much more intelligent person. So, because I could turn around and say, well, you know, here's a page which is who else is doing it in the world? You, you're giving me a cookbook so that I can actually seem like I'm a really intelligent person on the topic. That's incredible leadership. And that's the sort of thing that we normally see economic development units in governments doing, where they're setting down a blueprint that says, here's what the future economic opportunity is, and there's a 10 to 30-year horizon to go do that. So I find this fascinating that that you haven't come from inside a government department. This has been your own passion and your own insight, plus some good economics, plus some good engineering, but then handing it over out to people so it then becomes community-driven, a community of experts, but that's a phenomenal thing to do. Did you have any idea that that was what you were doing or was it just like this is a good idea that has to work? Um, I think, uh, I mean, I think it came from in some ways like obsessing over the problem and the solution and like as a, I guess, yeah, as an engineer, I'm interested in solving problems and I definitely... Like you said, I mean, there's a lot of numbers and stuff in there, really, in some ways, like we, like, we kind of looked at it as a computer and we're like, let's ask the question, what's the most cost-effective way of like having a city with no impact? But I think actually as a starting point before even talking about the city is like, yeah, why the city? And I, I just think it's interesting that it, there's a lot of blame. Everyone blames the government. They blame, you know, all the big businesses and, you know, even blaming individuals for, you know, not voting in the right way or not doing enough and, you know, not having the right consumer choice. And just everyone's blaming everyone. But I think acknowledging that we're all at fault and we're all responsible, I think, was, for me, really pivotal. And then I actually just think that it's interesting because imagine tomorrow the Australian government says, okay, we're going to go for a zero carbon society by 2030. Like, yeah, amazing. Like everyone's wanted that to happen for ages. Like we all win. How are we going to do it? And I think that like that's probably because we've always been in the space of looking at where these projects need to happen kind of 10 years ahead. I think we just saw that gap of going, actually, there's no, there's no pathway. There's no plan. And, and you can see what's going to happen is that policy will come in and we'll, we'll say we're going to do it, but it'll be really inefficiently spent on how to actually, what are the initiatives required to get to a zero carbon, water neutral, zero waste society? And there's no real, like, and so we just thought, well, we could, you know, where, where do you put your, where do you put your effort? You know, it's like we could, I could go to protests, I could sit around dinner parties and complain, but actually like, we do technical financial strategy and we were doing it on the wrong scale. We were doing it on building scale because that's where we're allowed to. Uh-huh. That's where we're paid to. That's where the, the, the system enables us to survive. But we, without having money, just were like, well, let's just do it outside our space and let's just build a city because a building is kind of, a city is just, you know, Melbourne's made up of a million buildings. And like, we just sort of, we do buildings, we do master plans. We're like, well, we can do that. We can just do a city. So we didn't really know. And it was uncharted territory for us, but it was, um, and, and, you know, I, I think it allowed us to understand better what the solution was. And also then um, 
but yeah, I still think in some ways, like I said, it was, it's like asking, it, it, it's kind of simple, you know, like it's the, the actual problem solving part of it was not the complex part. I think what's complex is him. And, well, you're 100% right. And hence the T-shirt, you know, it's, uh, every, it's interesting. In all these conversations, people wind up with, uh, that's kind of simple. And then they're looking at a guy with a shirt on and says, never simple. Yeah. Because the insight that, you know, when you've got everything lined up, it looks elegant and simple. It's how do you keep all of those pieces lined up so there's the golden path through? And then you're going to say, well, we've actually now put a thread in there. And so if the model shifts, we can still follow that thread, you know, down the, the new path that's there. I think maybe the term might be it's actually elegant in, in, in the examples that have come up because there's nothing simple about any of them. They're, they're very complex modelling, but there's an elegance and a grace to it, which is it's doable. Yeah. And it's broken yeah. out. So, so I feel like I can actually... Okay, a, a car has 2,000 parts in it. Nobody says by making one part that you made a car. Mm -hmm. um, you know, surely if there's a, a city has a millions of parts, there's going to be a few that are similar. But we know that cities are a, that there's a, a big bit of software that goes into running a city, which is a collective experience and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that I think it's fair to say that our software that we had handed over from the 80s and 90s may have come to the end of that operating system's life. You know, it was like an end of cycle and we need to put some new software in there. And the new software is to me, you know, this uh, whether it's a draft or it's the final version, it's these sorts of documents that are giving that new software for people who are trying to work out the new programs in cities that actually have that strong economics, they have the great environmental profile, but they're also about the equity and inclusion aspects in there. And that's a, that's a very tricky thing to do, to actually propose some new software, to propose new ways of considering the same problem. But we do it, you know, my phone here, my phone gets updated every week. There's some new patch that comes through. We don't do that with the way that we think about cities and the way that we think about the planning there. So, so I, I find it quite astounding what's there. And the fact that you've then gone and given that over to other people, almost like an open open source software project, was saying, well, now what would you do with it? And then that's going to take on different generations and it's going to iterate and it's going to change. But you've started a movement here, which is a lot of people will say, oh, that's right, it was that new normal that began that discussion in 2020 with a, a group of peers, became 2021, which was that there was a pop-up demonstration. By 2022, there's a bunch of the projects which are funded and beginning to be executed. These things begin to multiply out like a cone and then get, get more impact in there. Are you done with this or are you occupied now just trying to get all of those pieces of the puzzle done? Like, what's, what's your engagement with it? Yeah, we're um, we're kicking down doors to make this thing real, and I think that I think that's the thing is like it's a living organism now. I think like I think we there was a lot of theory that went into it, but it does feel like it has a life of its own in some ways. And I think that it will, um, we you know we I my what's really on my mind is like close deals, get these projects happening, deliver them. Otherwise, it's just an idea. And when and that was that was very much the part of the ethos since the beginning was. The reason why we're like, you know, you know, sort of the way you talked about the report before, 
we've created this sense of it happening rather than kind of uh, it, it sort of, you know, here's a, here's a proposition, can you approve it? And I think you might have even got me thinking about that back in then, back when we were writing that report, was it's just like, you know, we're not waiting for anyone's approval. Um, we're, we're getting on with this. And I think, the, you know, the other thing you mentioned before was um, kind of, it's new in some ways, but I actually think what's kind of part of the elegance of where we're coming from is that actually none of it's new. The sum of the parts and the outcome would be very new, you know, like the kind of the, the outcome would be something that's never been done before anywhere in the world and it's significant, like it's, uh, it's incredible. But actually, I think what, like in some ways we're not really creating new software or new hardware, we're kind of like just weaving in the gaps, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like there's, a, there's a little upgrade. There's definitely a little upgrade. It's more like an update of software rather than saying like, boom, throw all that stuff away and, and do this new. Like really fundamentally, we're looking at it as saying, there's an existing city that's like got so much there. Let's like refine that. For example, cars, like let's not throw away all our existing cars and buy new electric ones. Let's retrofit the existing ones. And, and so it all comes from a very like sort of um, light touch kind of approach of what's the path of least resistance. And I think, I, I mean, you know, like thinking about it in terms of like problem solving and design and stuff, I think what I've enjoyed is being, I'm probably a creative person, if, you know, I mean, I think everyone's probably creative in their own way, but I, I'm really come at it from a numerical background personally, and it's been cool to look at this as something that's like numerically trying to problem solve something but then going to like bring in design and 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 bring that to the the like i think that has been so powerful and that's for me when the project got really exciting it's like two years of us punching calculations writing a report who cares but actually getting 15 of melbourne's best designers together to basically translate those initiatives into tangible projects that are integrated into the city, that have a feeling, that are culturally connected, um, like that and commercially viable and achievable and deliverable and, and you know, just like engaging and exciting. There's so much to each of those projects. And I think that that was like sort of, I think that to me that's kind of where things started to accelerate and where things have started to really kind of, um, uh, I mean, we've been motivating each other as well because it's sort of just everyone's bouncing off each other to kind of like, there's an element of competition in there. There's a there's an element of kind of like, you know, camaraderie, but then also now we have to make these things happen. And I think coming back to your question of where we're focusing, it's like, we're just going to knock off each of these projects. And it's like, I, you know, we, we are on a mission to find funds for all 15 projects by the end of the year. And then we've got to deliver them. Um, and, and then, like, really what I think is fundamentally very exciting about this is if we went to state government and said, hey, here's these, all this policy that we want you guys to do and you need to, you've got to do it for climate change and you've got to do it for these reasons, good for the economy and all these things. People are like, yeah, 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 sure. But by building these projects and basically we're working with the private sector to 
to deliver 15 projects that are demonstration projects that de-risk it for the public sector. And to me, this is what's exciting is like unlocking policy, which seems out of reach for someone like me in the private sector mm-hmm. by, by doing physical things that we know how to do all the time. And what's also interesting about that is that those projects are being elevated as a result of that because it's more motivational, exciting to create a project that's really doing that as opposed to normal projects where they are like, yeah, that'd be cool to do, but we probably won't do it because, you know, like we need to trim the budget here and we need to trim the budget here. These projects are coming in full force going like no compromises, have to do that because it's creating this showcase for these reasons and it's going to unlock this. And it's sort of like... Um, uh, yeah, I feel like that it's very purposeful, but also like somehow it, I'm still trying to understand it myself. Okay. I feel like I've been trying to um, persuade clients for a decade to, to deliver some of these projects, all of these projects really like it's kind of feels like a decade of knocking on people's doors going, boom, can you do this? But I think there's this magic thing about hundred billion with 15 projects, the 15 projects have just become a bit more like, and people are saying to me, oh, you only need 50 mil. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, 50 mil is easy to raise, like for 100 billion. But yeah. if I just rolled in and said, hey, I need 50 mil to build 15 projects, people would laugh at me. So, and you're right there. There's some magic in how you sell the desire for the big pot, not how much fuel it's going to take to drive to where the big pot is, you know. Yeah. And so, so we can all draw the rainbow out, but you're saying we need a $50 million fuel ticket to go get to the end of the rainbow. And everyone goes, okay, we want to do that. I want to just pull you back a little and, and challenge you, actually. Yeah, please. Love, love a good challenge. You mentioned that, there's, that you're not doing anything particularly unique and that, you know, the software is there. I, I want to actually just, just stomp on all of that. And how I'm going to do that is I'm going to take you back to the music industry and Mm -hmm. I'm going to take to the mid-70s and take you all the way through the 90s. So you've got a good span there of years. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why things accelerated in the Melbourne music industry that then became bands like Men at Work and ACDC and In Excess and, you know, these bands that had opportunities that were generated through Melbourne, plus all the thousands of other bands who didn't become international successes but had very good livings and had very good careers and provided a lot of uh, pleasure to people. So what's interesting about that is that wasn't policy-driven, that was happenstance. And the happenstance had a few different players in it So people like Molly Meldrum. Molly Meldrum was based in Melbourne. The fact that Molly Meldrum had a dysfunctional family that then meant that he was then at Normie Rowe's house and that Normie Rowe was then his, in effect, his stepbrother or foster family brother, that that was a magical moment. You then had people like Michael Gudinski. You had Sundry Music Festival, which by all intents and purposes, was a flop because it didn't continue, you know, but, but it started so many things off. You had the fact that people who owned pubs in Melbourne found that they were losing out on their trade and they needed new revenue streams and they didn't have pokey machines 
and because uh, in New South Wales they had poking machines and therefore the clubs got their revenue out of the gambling, not out of the live entertainment. So people were hungrier for the opportunity to go get young people in to drink beer in excessive amounts on a regular basis in their hotel. Now, that was a massive enabler. Now, but you turn around and say that the music that they were playing were basically the same notes. You know, nobody invented new notes and nobody invented new guitars or new drums. But all of that that I've just described there is about software. It was how it formed together and, and how it coalesced into the opportunities. And there were some hungry people who went for it. Mm-hmm. And they went for it and they created these opportunities and nobody was the particular father. Nobody was the particular instigator. There were some really key players in there, like the architectural practices that you brought. Mm-hmm. But it was the fact that it just started and it, and it got into people's imaginations about live music. Now, there's another factor that made Melbourne work that didn't make it, it, the same thing happen in Sydney was the fact that in Melbourne, the geography is so different. In Sydney, because you've got these villages who are actually hidden in, you know, as they go down to the harbour, there's generally valleys that people are in. People don't cross over the hills and go to the next village or the next valley into the next valley. But Melbourne, you'd have people who would say, oh, I'm in Malvern. I've heard there's something out at the Croxton Park or there's something at the Cross Keys. And uh, people were driving massive distances but because the roads were really good. They could get there quite quickly and that they were able to go see bands who were in Melbourne for a week and they'd seen them five times. So you had this repeat attendance that you didn't get when bands went to Sydney. So they had shorter stays in Sydney. The scene wasn't as great. The scene in Melbourne was better because people could play at multiple venues for uh, across a couple of weeks and they'd also go on countdown. Yeah. And, and, and so you had, they're saying, oh, what, a television program? Because the television program made them national. Mm-hmm. And then you had someone like Molly Meldrum who held parties in Richmond where he turned around and he invited all these international artists and then there was international collaboration. You know, someone like Niall Rogers from Chic turning around and meeting at a, a party that Molly did with the guys from In Excess and then he winds up producing their album for them mm-hmm. just after he's produced an album for David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And you're going like, you know, so, so these collisions that happen and the coalescing there, that's all the software. And I think that's the phase that you're up to. We won't know this until we're about 20 years down the track. Mm-hmm. But the people that you're bringing together are part of a movement, which isn't a protest movement, but they're in this scene, which is saying, well, we're going to make a big difference. We're going to actually change things. They're competitive, as the bands were. They've got different facilities, which are the different sites. You've got some people like you and me who are trying to go and help enable them in different ways. Um, you've got this uh, piece that you're speaking to about people who've got money, which was kind of what like Michael Gadinsky did. He spoke to people on the money side. If he hadn't have had a relationship with Rupert Murdoch, then Mushroom Records would have fallen. You need to find whoever your Rupert Murdoch is who says, here's the 50 mil and why don't you want another 500 mil? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, they're the sorts of things that happen. Yeah. But they happen because people hear about you and the, and the purpose of these spotlights are people need to hear and they need to know what everyone's doing so that we then get that cross-fertilisation. Mm-hmm. Now, it might be somebody at Mock McDonald who's in the UK who's watching this and says, oh, I didn't realise that our Australian officer was doing that. Why aren't we supporting more? Mm-hmm. Or any one of, you know, 10 other companies who say, well, we want to get in there. If Mock McDonald are in there, 
then maybe we should be in there as well. Or it's, you know, it's that sort of competitiveness, which I think is actually the opportunity here. And, and also between cities. I mean, that, that's the other side of things that I'm sort of chipping away at behind the scenes is um, we're in touch with a number of cities around the world of trying to set up there. So I think like we don't want to try and jump the gun before we've got things moving in Melbourne. But I think, you know, like really this is the, the space race of our generation is basically it's like which city gets there first. And, you know, like, and I, you know, to set up an international competition for every city to race each other there is kind of like, you know, some, something that sort of has to happen. Yep. And, you know, there were many Australian music artists who then went over to LA and helped support the LA industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's um, bands like the Dingoes and the Stars, members from that, then left and went over and then wrote songs for Pat Benatar that became number one hits. And you're going, but that didn't sound anything like what they were doing with, you know, those Australian pub rock bands. Totally. That's what happens when the cycle takes place. Mm -hmm. But it needs people who have been crazy enough to turn around and actually say, I think there might be an opportunity. I think this might look like this. And that's what I think you've managed to go get here in the new normal, which, are, which is astounding. So now, is this available as a PDF download for people or there's a site? Yeah, um, it's online, www.normalize.it. Normalize it, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a kind of interactive website where you can kind of see all the information, but then there's also a downloadable report. And then is there a link that you can share with me for people who want to pitch in on projects? Uh, is there, uh, are there, you know, funding opportunities or did people just get in touch with you and say, I want to put some money in this, I want to know more? Yeah, I guess... Um uh, it's a good question, actually. I mean, basically, through the website, there's ways of uh, in everyone engaging with us, whether they're investors or proposing new projects and um, all, everything in between. But um, we, uh, to be honest, we're finding most, you know, most luck is really just coming through people reaching out to either us or the architects and saying, hey, we, we've seen what you're doing and we, we want to help. But um, not that many people are coming through the website. And I think that's kind of, in some ways, um, like not to say it's not, not possible, but I think also um, there's, it feels like a level of like um, authenticity and kind of like uh, closeness between uh, individuals that is helping this kind of uh, um, move at the rate that it should, if that makes any sense. Like I think I'm not expecting us to have any crazy wins where someone out of the nowhere just offers us 500 mil. And I feel like it's sort of uh, that, you know, like I feel like the chipping away approach is sort of part of our economic modeling. Like we're looking at it as 50 mil this year, but then we're going to get 500 next year and then a billion the year after and then 10 bill. And then it's going to be 18 bill after that every year until we get there. And, you know, the, the websites are really useful resources, but in all merger acquisition investment scenarios, it's a human factor and people want to go into a deal room. They want to have some more detail that's provided there. But at least there's a starting point for them. They can say, okay, I've had a look at the brochure. I, I know the menu that's available. 
here's the 15 projects. God damn it, I missed out on four of them. But now there's 11 left and I can actually put my and get involved and find out about the 11 projects. Ross, this has been a fantastic opportunity to drill a little bit further, shine the spotlight on the project. Now, there's two things I like to do before I wrap up on, on a spotlight. One is I'd love to ask, what have I missed out and what have we actually sped over that we need to go back and just deal with a little bit more? And the second one is I want to ask who's inspiring you at the moment. So what have I missed out on as we've been going and, and talking here? Is there any particular key message that we need to get across? Um, I don't I don't think we've missed a lot. I think, um, I mean, there's obviously lots of uh, behind, you know, thinking behind how it will happen that we never really covered and, but I think um, probably the trying to think if there's anything major that we missed, but pro probably just um, you know I think I think we've got it. Oh yeah, I mean we really didn't cover technology meets culture, and I think that's something that, that's worth explaining. Yeah. I think that was a big, big kind of jump for us, and it was theory. Like I actually a big a big part of this whole project comes from throwing solar-powered parties. <laughs> right. So, okay. So, so tell me about technology meets culture and, and, and let's spend some time because we haven't got a time limit here. All I'm trying to do is make sure we're being respectful to yours and the viewers' time. So tell me about technology meeting culture. Easy. Uh, yeah, I, I probably have to, I've got to go for a run in about 15 minutes. So. Well, let's hope we not, don't take that long. Yeah. Got time. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> look, we... There's an intentional, uh, intentional approach with the project. Like I, I kind of touched on the idea of empathy earlier and it's sort of, I think that, yeah, coming back to this point about humans not really liking change and that being a sort of instinctive thing, kind of like stay safe, stay in your kind of like territory, don't change too much. It's, it's you know, it's survival. Um, but then... Uh, yeah, when we've got change, it's inevitable. How do we manage that? So I think that trying to kind of, um, I think traditionally old school environmentalism is, is, is linked with awareness and saying, I'm an environmentalist. I'm well informed on this topic. I've got information. The you all need to know about this and you all need to change. And I'm going to share that with you and you need to be aware. And I think that we've been trying that for a while. And I think that that's not happening fast enough. And I think time's running out and we don't have enough time for the whole population of the world to care, basically, is kind of like my position on the topic. And I think that there's, um, there's potentially a, a, you know, a, a path of least resistance on that and, and it's about making it easy for everyone. And so we feel that the technological solution, you know, like there's kind of this, there's kind of the why, the what and the how. And I think like if you ask people why would we want this transition to happen, I think you're asking the wrong question. And I think that's disempowering and it's been people being caught in that debate for too long. I think the what, we you could sit 10 experts, 10 probably the, the best engineers in Melbourne, for example, or any city and sit them down and go, what is the technological solution? And probably in a day or half a day, they could all probably sit there and roughly agree on it. Um, but the how is where I think it's really complex. And that's where our, you know, rather than, than leaving people debating the what, I don't think 5 million people in Melbourne need to have an argument about whether 
geothermal technology is plausible in Melbourne or, you know, whether it's wind or solar or, you know, what's the most cost-effective thing and do we need batteries and not batteries and cars and not cars, you know, like all of this stuff is kind of um, in some ways, uh, like I think it's disempowering people because it makes everyone feel like they all need to have a PhD in sustainability to be involved in the conversation. And so our attitude is kind of, in some ways, there's, there's, I think, to be have a big gap, a big step forward. We need to kind of have a level of like acknowledgement of a solution that feels strong. And so that our approach was, we did that analysis behind the scenes by looking at case studies around the world, and then we basically went out to the engineers in Melbourne and said, hey, here's what we're proposing. Give us your feedback. Do a peer review. And we got a fair bit of general consensus, some tweaks here and there, but generally everyone's like, yeah, it's pretty much like good enough, you know, maybe it's, is it 150 anaerobic digesters or 160? But, you know, it's like, don't worry, like build a couple and work it out later. You know, there's, there's an element of like imperfection that I think needs to happen with this as well. And so, but I think what's, what's been big with this is going how, and I think if we, if we take, and acknowledge these things need to happen, then then debating the how is where the whole population of the city are extremely important and valuable and like, you know, entirely necessary. And I think that's where it allows everyone to kind of grab something, critique it and participate in it, but not slow it down. And that's where our approach is kind of like, you could compare it to poetry. It's like with poetry, you're encrypting information and allowing people to decipher it for themselves. And this is something I learned about through throwing parties, which is like for years I've been advising people on solar energy systems and, and you know, batteries and all this sort of stuff. You can talk about the size, the cost, the payback period, the energy generated, the benefits from it, blah, 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 feed-in tariffs, blah, blah, blah. But really, if you throw, connect a solar system with a cool band or cool DJ and you throw a killer party and you tell everyone that music sounds better when it comes from the sun, they basically come out and have a good time and you, you basically, you're no longer preaching to the converted and doing awareness. You're basically engaging a whole audience of people that want to come for the fun. They want to, they want to engage in the experience. They want to come because there's cool people there and it's fun and it's interesting and they like the music and it's, it's the cultural connection. And this was where I've wondered for years, why does everyone care so much about these solar powered parties we throw? And why do they not care about all this other cool technological advice that we provide people with? And it's like, and I realize it's not the, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's wasn't solar and music, it was technology and culture. And so what we did with all of the architects was we said, hey, here's the initiative but we want you guys to all find cultural connections to each of these projects. And I think that's been part of the kind of exciting component for like the, you know, for everyone involved is that it makes it accessible for everyone to engage in it in that process. And I think you don't have to be like, you don't have to care, you know, like, I mean, it's a waste energy plant connected with a sauna. Like uh, most, like, I mean, so many people are interested in wellness and saunas anyway. And it's like, to create a diversion and to create curiosity, I think that's how people like receiving information, not being didactically communicated to and information jammed down their throat, 
people like asking for it, people like searching for it. And, you know, like it's fine to give people a flavor of it. But I think like we don't have time to educate the whole world on how this thing's going to happen. And I think like trying to put it in a way that is really easy for people, whether they care or not, I think is really, for me, fundamentally very exciting because that, that, you know, links with inevitability. And I think one of the things we afford ourselves with culture is that we allow ourselves to be non-rational. Uh-huh, totally. So, and you know, it's much more democratic as well. Like, you know, I mean, def- uh, um, culture is defined, one definition is the sum total of ways of living passed down from one generation to the next. And it's like, this is part of the letting go of this thing is that it's not my idea. It's not our idea. It's nobody's idea. Like culture is us <laughs> and that's where we're all part of it. And I think like, that's why I'm feeling personally, that's my feeling about the project is that everyone that sees it, touches it, feels it, connects with it is part of it because they're part of the culture of the city. And that- and that's one that, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the economics and we've spoken about the environment. Social equity is about being inclusive and not having barriers there. And when you shift it from a, um, say, a quantitative economics or a quantitative environmental impact and you get it down to being what are your values, what do you imagine for future generations, do you want to be involved with this? Then you're getting that democratization of a movement, which is this is what I imagine I'd like for my children and my grandchildren. Everybody can be part of that. Yeah. And, and that's an incredible thing to go and encapsulate because very few people understand how economics works, even economists. Mm-hmm. Very few people understand how the environment works, even the even the scientists, they, they can tell you that it works one way, but then they get surprises that uh, surprise them. So we know the experts are still trying to work it out. But what I imagine for my kids, my grandkids and my great-grandchildren mm-hmm. is a graceful, elegant, joyful future. And that doesn't come if we're all in survival mode. That only comes if we're in thrive mode. So I, I, I think it's amazing what you've done there in Solar parties, though, that's, uh, that is an absolute new one. We were, I'll see if I can hunt out some links uh, to solar parties and we'll put it in with the, with the session. But it was, it, I mean, it, it is an interesting, it was one of the most interesting things for me over the times is like through testing, through prototyping, you know, like I think that like, you know, and that's what we're doing a lot is trying to put it out there and like getting these feedback loops and trying to learn as we go. And I think... The other question you asked me about who's inspiring me. Yeah. So, um, I actually um, am learning a lot about, um, I mean, uh, Jeeva Greenaway, and um, who's Australia's first registered First Nations architect, and, um, you know, First Nations culture in Australia and um, sort of Indigenous culture all over the world, I think is really what, I'm becoming more sort of magnetically connected to in what we're doing here is that I've always been interested, but not informed and I'm trying to learn, but also I'm feeling that, you know, like there's this interesting kind of pull to that is that basically uh, 
First Nations culture in Australia, talk it's not sustainability, it's caring for country. And so we're getting kind of more and more connected um, with Jeepa and he works with Theo and I'm really inspired about repositioning this topic in, in a way of like understanding the land and also understanding the people that have understood the land for a very long time before, you know, us imposters here that are kind of like hanging out. And I think also, um, like to me, that's becoming, it's also on my mind about translating this project to other places and kind of like we're starting to talk uh, to people in Auckland and Wellington. And it's like, you know, they, 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 that's also becoming fundamentally the first talking point is like, let's talk to the Iwi, let's work out how we're basically going to approach this. And I think like, I'm fundamentally really interested in that becoming the kind of key pillar of what we're doing is kind of got like, and it was actually accidentally something, a key lesson I learned from the beginning of when I started working was look at, you know, when you look at sort of passive architecture and passive design, it's like, look at how people have been creating structures in that location for thousands of years beforehand. They've been trial and erring on, on, that, on, the, on that land for that time. And if they build with thick, heavy walls or if they're built, built with lightweight walls or if they, you know, like all, all of these different techniques have, have, have evolved over thousands of years. And then it's only in the last 200 years that when, you know, coal and, and, and you know, basically steam engine and electricity comes in, that we start to ignore all of that amazing knowledge that's built up in all of these locations. And so I think like that's where I'm most inspired and most like uh, enthusiastic to learn from moving forward is just kind of how to engage with and understand and, and connect with and, you know, with, with, on a personal level and on a professional level at the same time. Well, you know, I think the, the, what you summarise there is the difference between the idea of the breakthrough economic cycles that people have had rather than those longitudinal, let's bring everybody along, which is probably more the First Nations. How do we actually get everybody to rise up and everybody to thrive? Um, I've been astounded uh, learning more about what you're doing. Hopefully other people have as well. And uh, I look forward to check in with you in a period of time and find out how those other projects are going and hearing about the roaring success that is. Thanks for your time, Ross. Thanks very much, Mark. Great to catch up with you.